Welcome to Impact AI, brought to you by Pixel Scientia Labs. I'm your host, Heather Couture. On this podcast, I interview innovators and entrepreneurs about building a mission-driven, machine-learning-powered company. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to my newsletter to be notified about new episodes. Plus, follow the latest research in computer vision for people in planetary health. You can sign up at pixelscientia.com newsletter. Today, I'm joined by guest Raphael Rosengarten, CEO and co-founder of Genialis, to talk about targeted cancer treatments. Raphael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Heather. Raphael, could you share a bit about your background and how that led you to create Genialis? Sure, I'd be delighted to. My background as a, a life scientist, I actually joke and say that I'm a, a former jellyfishologist because in graduate school, I studied evolutionary genetics and, and was really really interested in marine critters and marine systems. Really, I just wanted to scuba dive. But throughout my scientific career and my academic training, I kept getting more and more interested in mechanisms, the why and the how of how biology worked. And so that led me more towards genetics and genes and molecules. And eventually I gave up scuba diving for doing molecular biology in a lab with clear plastic tubes. And I moved even deeper into things like data analysis, really crunching you know, data to understand how biological systems worked. Um, this led me to spend some time in synthetic biology, where we were designing biological systems. There's a saying that if you can design it and it works, then you really understood it. And it also led me to to start to learn more about data science. Now, I'm not a data scientist practitioner, but I did spend quite some time training around the edges so that I could have meaningful conversations with data science collaborators. And so when I was a postdoctoral fellow at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, back in the sort of 2011 to 15 period, I met a handful of really great data science collaborators from a Slovenian lab group. And one of these uh, Slovenian data scientists ended up becoming my co-founder. He had actually just started Genialis on the uh, strength of some technology from his lab and was looking for a U.S. co-founder from a life science background who could help point the technology towards important problems. And so that's kind of the origin story of the company um, back in the 2015-16 time period. So what does Genialis do and, and why is this important in treating cancer? That's a, a great question. So, you know, again, the challenge was to figure out what is the most impactful problem we could solve with these emerging machine learning technologies that we were developing. And so that's what Genialis does. We apply machine learning to try to help patients find the best drugs for their disease to help really realize the promise of precision medicine. And so the way we do this is by building models that understand fundamental disease biology. And you mentioned cancer. We focus primarily on oncology, not exclusively, but most of our work is there. So we build models that understand that the driver biologies of different cancers are behind different therapeutic opportunities. And we use these models to predict from patient sequencing data, from data that derive from individual patients' tumors, what kind of drug or what drug specifically is most likely to benefit that patient. And we deploy our models in a couple of ways. One is with drug companies that are developing new medicines, and another is with diagnostics companies that are building diagnostics tests that would help you know, clinicians uh, decide on a particular intervention. So these are supervised models, the input is sequencing data, and the output is something along the lines of, is this treatment appropriate or not for this individual? Something like that. The input is sequencing data, 
And the model will learn the relationship and the interaction between some number of genes. We like to use RNA sequencing data rather than DNA-seq, at least for now. We think it's a more informative analyte. It gets you closer to the phenotype and provides a lot more variety of information. The model will the models will output a classification. Does this patient's tumor belong to phenotype A, B, C, or D, for example? And based on that tumor phenotype, we then have a hypothesis for each phenotype of, of what therapy or class of therapy would be most useful. And so it's not, the model is not learning directly patient response to a particular drug. The models are learning the fundamental biological nature of the disease. And from that, we can extrapolate what the best intervention will be. And these biological phenotypes, are, are these things that oncologists and other specialists have previously come up with that and determined to be important in, in determining treatment, or where do they come from? Sometimes yes, and sometimes no. In one of our lead models, the four phenotypes models predict have been described in the literature in various ways, not always using the same terminology, but you know, it's appreciated, for example, that some tumors are immune hot and some tumors are immune cold. It's appreciated that some tumors are highly angiogenic, meaning they have lots of blood vessels in them, and some do not. You know, so these kinds of phenotypes are, are known, but the way the model determines them as you know, the kind of the consequence of intersecting biologies is, is actually pretty unique. In other cases, we are, are coming up with you know, categories or phenotypic groupings that require us to dig in and figure out you know, how would we describe this phenotype because it's not obvious or it's not intuitive or it hasn't already been, been you know, sort of captured in the literature. What kinds of challenges do you encounter in working with the sequencing data and, and training models based off of it? The biggest challenge you know, right up front is pulling together the most appropriate data sets. Right? So we need data sets that we use for feature discovery. That's the kind of beginning part where we ask the questions, what biologies are most important to model for a given problem? And what molecules, what genes are going to best represent those biologies? Right? So we, we have to have a bunch of data that we use for exploring those questions, typically in a very data-driven way using bioinformatics and, and other systems biology tools. And then we need once we've come up with you know, some candidate gene signatures that represent our in biologies of interest, then we need to do the machine learning. And there, you, obviously, you need training data, right? So pulling together a coherent training data set that simultaneously is as free of bias as possible. So in other words, it represents your intent to treat population around the world as best as possible, but also, and it also is of sufficient size to train a model, but also where the patients have, you know, as few kind of confounders in their clinical history as possible. And so it's actually a rather tall challenge to pull together a, you know, substantially sized patient data set where the patients come from all walks of life and corners of the world, but also you know, have enough in common that, that the data are meaningful together. We've built a lot of technology, a lot of our kind of secret sauces around how we do that, how we harmonize that kind of training data set. And then we, once we've trained a model, we need data, independent data sets to validate the model. And this is typically where our partnerships come in. We work directly with drug companies that are doing drug development. So we can actually validate a biological model on sort of first in patient data. And that's really meaningful because there won't be enough first and patient data to train a model on. You know, if the drug's not on the market yet, maybe only 15 or 100 or 150 patients have even seen that drug yet. 
but we can use those precious clinical data for validation and test our various phenotype to therapy hypotheses. The sequencing data itself, could you, for those who aren't familiar with, with this type of data, could you elaborate more on what that looks like, high dimensional, you know, what are its characteristics? Yeah, so just to take a big step back, when we talk about sequencing data, this is the kind of data that arise when we set out to, for example, sequence the first human genome, right, which was undertaken in the late 90s and early 2000s and completed, you know, between 2001 and 2003. But this technology has expanded dramatically. So we can sequence DNA, right? And that's the genetic code. We can also sequence RNA, which is the messages derived from that code that actually tell the cell what to make and what to do. And we can sequence lots of other kinds of molecules as well. In genealysis hands, we really like to work with the RNA. So again, these are the messages. And we believe the RNA holds a lot of information. These are very high dimensional data. So depending on how you how you count it, there's somewhere between 20 and 50,000 genes in the genome, right? So we're expecting to get, you know, measurements from all of those and across however many, you know, patients or preclinical samples or, or what have you. The data are often a bit sparse. Not all genes have detectable expression at once, and certainly not all genes are going to be informative. And so, you know, we've built really beautiful software that allow us to aggregate these kinds of sequencing data to process them in a very uniform way, layer on what we call metadata, so the clinical information or the experimental information that's crucial for understanding where those data come from, and to harmonize data that come from lots of different places. In other words, to pull data from different sources together in a way that they're useful together. So we have that chunk of technology that lets us really work at scale with high-throughput sequencing data. And again, we today like to use RNA, um, RNA sequencing itself is, you know, at least a 15-year-old technology. It's not, bulk RNA sequencing is not cutting edge unto itself. But bulk RNA sequencing for clinical applications, where you have to go into a regulated environment and have FDA approval and make sure that things are super consistent and robust, that's actually pretty cutting edge. And, and we've had quite some success there. So with this data being so high dimensional and sparse and many of the other, other challenges you mentioned there, are there any specific techniques that you found that are helpful in dealing with the dimensionality of the data and, and the sparsity? Yeah. So, you know, we have a series of, I guess you could call them filters that we apply to data when we want to go from, again, a, a data set that has 20 to 50,000 genes down to one that has somewhere closer to 20 to 50 genes, right? So we're looking for to reduce the number of genes that we're inputting into a machine learning model by something like, a, you know, an order of a thousand. And so part of that can be done with, with really standard bioinformatics, right? Looking just at, at minimum expression value thresholds, at distribution of expressions across samples, et cetera. Some of that can be done based also on, you know, whether these are genes that actually show variants from one setting to another. In other words, between tumors and normal tissue or between different patients, but we've invented some really cool methods for doing feature selection and feature reduction that explicitly address issues like bias, right? So when I talk about bias, what I mean here really is just differences between any two data sets that arise for reasons other than the one you're trying to measure, right? So there may be differences between two data sets that have nothing to do with differences in the cancers, but rather differences in how those data were collected how the patient samples were stored, what sequencing machine or sequencing platform was used. Biases can arise from gender, they can arise from, from genetic or ethnic background, and so forth. 
And so we've invented some cool technologies that allow us to walk across these different, what we call axes of bias, these different sources of what will ultimately be you know, noise in your model and select only those gene features that are, are rigorous and robust in sort of all of the settings in which we need them to be. And this has been super helpful. It's allowed us, for example, to, to build a model with uh, a collaborator that was trained on gastric cancer data and not only gastric cancer data, but microarray data. So an older form of, of data generation and has been since validated to work in ovarian cancer, colorectal cancer, melanoma, uh, et cetera. We had a poster in lung cancer and we're, we're testing it out in breast cancer. So it really is a pan-cancer model, even though it was trained on a data set that was just gastric cancer. And it works on RNA sequencing of all different chemistries, even though it's trained on microarray. And the reason why we think in large part is because we took a really hard look at those sources of bias when we were doing feature selection. So you've mentioned two criteria with, with respect to bias. One is being careful about the patients you select, and two is being careful about the features you select. In mitigating bias, are these data aspects the, the main things that you do to tackle bias, or is there anything with respect to the algorithm, the way you train it, that might also help in, in mitigating bias? Yeah, that's a really great question. The key with algorithm training, of course, is to try to avoid what's known as overfitting, right? And so overfitting is where a model learns the signal and the training data, but you know, at the consequence of learning training data specific signal that doesn't generalize to other data, right? And so one thing we can do is we can be really thoughtful about the type of algorithm we select. You know, right now on the tip of everyone's tongue in the AI world are things like these large language models, foundational models, generative AI. These are super cool technologies. Undoubtedly, these will be transformational in healthcare. But they are also, they tend to be very deep and they tend to be fairly um, opaque black boxes. And what we've found when we're talking about training models for clinical applications, where there are a few things that are true. One is the data sets tend to be smaller and noisy because of the you know, clinical heterogeneity of the patients. And two is there are a lot of interested stakeholders who want to know how the model works. Regulators want to know how the model works. Physicians want to know how the model works. We are often better served by choosing a simpler, shallower artificial intelligence architecture you know, a shallow artificial neural network rather than a deep neural network, for example. It sounds way less cool and less sexy, but it works. The models actually learn really interesting patterns in the data that a human couldn't learn on their own, and we can explain them. And so this is one way to help minimize the, the sort of propagation of bias is by avoiding overfitting, by choosing a simple learning architecture that matches the kind of data you've got available. And then going to great pains to do the independent validation and some explanatory work, right? Building, building tools that allow you to unbox the black box and really look inside and understand what the model's doing. So you've mentioned that validating your models generally there, and you've also mentioned regulation. How mm -hmm. does the regulatory process affect how you develop and, and how you validate your models? Great question. So the FDA has drafted something called the Good Machine Learning Framework. So this is a set of guidelines that, you know, if you really know the field are, are fairly common sense, but it's important to keep them in mind. We have these printed on a giant poster in our office, right? Everything we do operates within this framework of good machine learning practice, which requires, of course, you know, keeping your validation data sets completely separate from your training data, 
keeping your training data separate from your discovery data and so forth. But the way that we build these models, again, to predict phenotype, where there's more than one phenotypic class that can be output, has a neat little advantage to it. It allows us to do hypothesis testing. Again, every phenotype that our model predicts, whether it's phenotype A, B, C, or D, has a different therapeutic hypothesis. We believe that phenotype A is going to benefit most from drug X, for example, phenotype B from drug Y, phenotype C from drug Z. So we go out and find data sets that allow us to directly test those hypotheses. So here we're not just looking at model performance, but we're also looking to understand did the model actually learn the therapeutic biology? And so I think that's a, a key differentiator to how we do things. Now, in terms of the regulatory context, we've found the FDA is super excited about this stuff. The FDA absolutely recognizes the importance and potential value of machine learning um, in clinical applications. They have taken what I think is an appropriately cautious stance to how, you know, how these kinds of tools need to be proved out. And at the end of the day, if you're building a diagnostic device using AI, or if you're designing and developing a drug you know, discovered by AI, you still have to meet the same kinds of burdens that a traditional diagnostic device or drug has to meet from the regulator's eye, right? It has to work. And so you know, we think about building out our validation schema to show that you know, the models at the very least will do no harm and at the best will actually you know, provide patient benefit. Your team has published a number of research articles. What benefits have you seen from publishing your work? I mean, the main thing is credibility, right? So everyone can say that they're doing AI. Everyone can say that they're, you know, building tools or assets that are going to be transformational in healthcare, but you kind of have to put it out there. So peer review is a trusted process, right? So peer review articles are great, but also, you know, pushing the work forward to let the world kind of see how, how it goes. So, you know, the biggest impact for us has been able to, you know, going out and telling the story. The paper we just had come out in Frontiers of Oncology it's actually the culmination of several years of work, and we have published those findings and more in conference posters for the last three years. Those kinds of public disclosures are absolutely key to get engagement from the community, right? So a big thing for us is we want you know, collaborators, we want drug companies and diagnostic companies and clinical centers and cancer centers to, to read this and say, hey, we want to try that you know, in our shop. Let's get together and you know do some retrospective studies on data that we've got available. And if it works well, we can go forward with building you know, new models that are specific to our programs. Thinking more broadly about your, your goals at Genialis, how do you measure the impact of your technology to, to make sure you're achieving what you set out to do? I mean, ultimately, you know, we want to see impact on patients. And this is actually why Genialis in the early days decided to focus on developing clinical applications, diagnostic type tools initially rather than starting with drug discovery. And it was simply a question of how many years will it take before we can start saving lives. And so we anticipate one of the models we've built being integrated into a, a pivotal phase two, three clinical trial that's supposed to start enrolling this year. We're really excited to see that. And so, you know, that's kind of the long tail. We have to, you know, be patient and wait to see what clinical benefit actually comes. But in the meantime, you know, we see that our models are being used and adopted by drug companies that are, are developing promising new medicines. And if we can help them design clinical trials that are faster to enroll, cheaper to enroll, that are more likely to meet their endpoints, and ultimately more likely to get really good medicines to those patients who are going to benefit, you know, that's a huge impact. So even, you know, what I'd call incremental success of, of seeing a phase two, successful phase two clinical trial 
of a drug that we're supporting with the biomarkers is a huge feather in our cap. Is there any advice you could offer to other leaders of AI-powered startups? That's a really great question. I would say, you know, start with your purpose, right? So, and I'm saying this as I do, as I say, not as we did necessarily, right? Genialis originally started with a suite of technologies that we were super excited about and kind of went searching for the purpose. And we found one and we've, you know, adopted it wholeheartedly. But I do believe it's ultimately better to start with the purpose. The truth is AI technologies right now are becoming hyper-commoditized. You know, the technology giants and even upstarts like OpenAI, which is not a giant, um, but has giant impact, you know, they've made publicly available some of the most powerful algorithms the world has ever imagined. And so it is still possible for small companies to come up with really innovative algorithms. We see this like in Silicon Medicine did a lot of the pioneering work on generative AI in the healthcare context. But for the most part, it really matters how you deploy these technologies. And I think you're more likely to become what they call an exponential organization or an organization that has huge scalable potential if your focus is on using resources that are generally available in novel ways, right? So instead of bogging down on trying to squeeze that last bit of, of accuracy out of a new model framework, you know, start with what we've got and apply it to your purpose. And finally, where do you see the impact of Genialis in three to five years? In three years, Genialis is going to have a number of new predictive models on the market for some of the most important emerging therapeutic areas in oncology. In five years, though, I'm hoping to unveil something that's going to be really, really game-changing. We're working on what amounts to a comprehensive phenotypic landscape of cancer. And my goal, and maybe it'll be five years, it might be seven or 10, but my goal in five years is to have a working version of this such that any cancer patient can have their tumor sequenced. And it might be RNA, but it might be a different analyte by then. It doesn't really matter. We can map it to, to the phenotype space. But any cancer patient can have their tumor evaluated by a single assay and be placed confidently in this again, comprehensive landscape, a map of cancer, where we know exactly you know, the driver biologies are, and we can associate those with the most likely therapies to work. I think what we're going to discover is that for some patients, maybe for many patients, there is not an existing therapy that's going to be best for them. And for those patients, because we've got a really detailed map of their disease biology, we can also, you know, really make an impact on new drug discovery, because we'll know exactly what biologies we need to go after with the next generation of drugs. This has been great. Raphael, your team at Genialis is doing some really interesting work for precision medicine. I expect that the insights you shared will be valuable to other AI companies. Where can people find out more about you online? So our website, obviously, www.genialis.com. Follow us on LinkedIn. We're, we're, we're putting out a lot of, of new content and thought leadership. We also have a podcast. So if you're into listening to podcasts, Talking Precision Medicine can be found on all major streaming services, also on our website. And I do encourage everyone to go check it out. We talk a lot on our website and in other posts about what we call our people-first approach. And this is really a, a dual philosophy of both how to build our business and how to build our company. So putting people and humans at the center of the AI paradigm, but also putting our people and our team at the center of, of how we work. And uh, you can learn all about that on our website. Perfect. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Heather. It's been a pleasure. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Heather Couture, and I hope you join me again next time for Impact AI. Thank you for listening to Impact AI. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share with a friend. And if you'd like to learn more about computer vision applications for people and planetary health, you can sign up for my newsletter at pixelscientia.com newsletter.